0: So as we begin, um, let yourself sit in a way that's comfortable and listen, not with the ears of trying to remember anything particularly. There's no grades or tests or anything, but just to sense what resonates in your heart as true or what raises an important question or awakens some understanding, and the rest of it. Just let it go. Discard, push the little delete button. (laughs) It's a pleasure to be back after a couple of weeks. Um, And what I'd like to do this evening is to continue with a series of teachings that we began last month on our Buddha nature. Um, And uh, even as... As I begin tonight, um, my mind is a little bit uh, spaced out and disorganized, so it might be a little bit like jazz and it may or may not be very (laughs) melodic. Um, I just got back uh, late last night from uh, a week of uh, men's retreat with Michael Mead, Luis Rodriguez, Orland Bishop, others, a hundred men in the woods in Mendocino. Um, that I've been a group called Mosaic that I've been working with, honored to work with, over a number of years. And then when I got back, I actually got back around 6 o'clock yesterday evening, and then immediately went over to do a funeral in the East Bay a Memorial Service for a, a community member who had died, um, Irene Pijuan, who had been sitting for 20 years or more. Um, And uh, the Mendocino retreat, um, which was a combination of poetry and storytelling and art and uh, mythology and ritual practices way deep in the woods in Mendocino Woodlands Camp, with a hundred men who were quite diverse, a number of young men, um, older guys, um, Latino, Asian-American, Native American, African American, and with a real emphasis on diversity and uh, a number of the guys who come to this, some with their mentors, are coming out of gangs um, and young men who've been um, going through difficult times. Um, And one of the themes this year was uh, working with medicine that would heal the wounds of the soul and the wounds of the world. And so part of the stories we told were around betrayal. And as we did then, sang and drummed and um, recited poetry, then the betrayals began to come out. Here are these guys who work for Homeboy Industries down in LA and Watts in East Los Angeles, who'd been gang members and got out and trying to make another life. Um, and Homeboy Industries, um, Uh, sells a line of clothing, Homeboy Industry Clothing. Um, And they police some of the parks there and do various things, including they were hired by the city to do graffiti removal. And in the last month, two of the members of the group were shot doing that, killed. So they came with their betrayal and their grief, Um, other men with other stories. you know, that's a guy who just came who was in Najaf in Iraq two weeks ago and just left the Marines and came back, a musician, and told his stories. So we did a number of funerals in these redwood trees. People caught stones at the river and carried them up, and um, we sang the songs of uh, grief and loss and then placed the stones on an altar made in the deep in the redwood trees while people were drumming and singing. And, Um, allowing the betrayal and broken heart to be held with some compassion. And we went on to long kind of almost initiation like rituals um, the last few nights, staying up quite late till the middle of the night, three in the morning or more, Um, going out um, after the funeral and uh, standing in the dark in these redwood trees with a, lit up by a few candles, these paths through the woods that the men made. And then going into the roots, inside uh, some of the redwood trees that had been burned out, you know how big they can be. And inside was made a place for each man to go in and bathe themselves in salt. There was a big uh, pile of salt mixed with herbs and, he- and, and healing oils um, as a purification to release the betrayals the losses, the abuses, all the stories that came out about how hard it was to try to be a man in the difficulties of the society. It's also hard to be a woman. I know the other half is (laughs) sitting here and would raise their hand and say, yes, us too. And um, after that, um, then you were blindfolded in this one particular ritual that went on. It was a 12-hour ritual process. uh, you are blindfolded and led through the forest and there's drums and music in the distance and you're led through this dark forest and down to the stream. And then in the middle of the night, since three in the morning, you s- led into the stream as the place of healing medicine um, after this great purification and cleansing and funeral and releasing things. And then plunge into the water of the stream blindfolded, stay in as long as you can. And then when you come up, you take the blindfold off, men did. And in front was this surprise in the afternoon when you have a lot of guys, you know, guys like to make stuff and things like that. We'd sort of built the ruins of some old Balinese or Mayan or Cambodian temple, hauled all these stones up from the river and piled them up, and then lit them with a thousand candles under the redwood trees and streaming gold banners. And you open your eyes as you come out of the water, and you're in this other world and then there was music that was playing for, as medicine for your soul. And then you were led back. And so I'm still a little bit kind of swimming in that stream <laughs> and haven't slept a lot. Now I came back to Irene, you know, to Irene's passing and her funeral. She, I saw her just a couple of days before she died when I went up to the retreat. And um, she was... Uh, in this place, at the end of her life of just, she was 50 years old, of just having to let go one thing after another, her daughter of her family, little by little letting go and learning somehow what it means to trust the Dharma. Uh, because in the end, um, what do we have? But what is in the heart? So I'll do what I can tonight anyway, storytelling. Um, The perfections or the expression of our heart's true nature, of our Buddha nature, that we began to speak of some weeks ago, which included the natural generosity of the heart, how much really as human beings we love giving to others when we can, and the inherent integrity, how wonderful it is to be able to sit and walk and talk from a place of our integrity, the shining integrity of our life when we are in, in true connection with our deepest being. And the um, quality of renunciation and simplicity um, that is natural to the heart. Mm-hmm. Everyone that I know um, struggles with trying to simplify their life because there's something in us that wants mm-hmm. to live clean and pure and true. And tonight is the quality of our Buddha nature of the heart of energy and aliveness. It's called virya in Sanskrit or Pali and vigor. Um, But before I talk more about it, an image, and I'm not sure if I've told this story recently in the last few weeks, but I'll tell it again anyway. When I was a monk in the forest monastery of Thailand back in the 1960s, My teacher told me a story that was happening just at that time in the northern part of the country, just north of Sukhothai, the old one, the ancient capitals, was a famous temple which had a huge Buddha statue in it that was made of clay, um, quite large and painted. And it was revered because it was very old, eight, nine hundred, a thousand years old. And even though it wasn't all that, Elegant as a work of art. Um, it stood there as a blessing through regime changes, some of which we know could be used still in this world, uh, this time, through, through, um, through wars, through um, uh, epidemics, through um, all the struggles and the historical changes over centuries. This temple and the monks in it guarded this statue, and it became a kind of blessing to go to it because it carried that uh, strength of uh, kind of the sustained energy that simply wouldn't be broken. And every 50 or 100 years, the clay would dry out, and they'd have to kind of re-mend it and repaint it. The monks would do that. And in the uh, year that I was in the monastery, um, it was time for that again. The statue would crack some, and one of the young monks became interested. I wonder how they made this big clay statue back 900 years ago. And so he took a flashlight and he looked in the little crack to see if he could see the structure inside. And surprise, as he did it, this great glint of golden light came back. Got sort of surprised by that. Looked in another crack and the same thing happened. And it turned out when they inspected further that underneath the clay, of this sort of homey Buddha statue uh, image was the largest golden, most beautiful and largest golden Buddha that had ever been cast in Southeast Asia, and it had been in there to protect it. You know those protective layers, don't you, <laughs> right? <laughs> to be protected from the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, as Shakespeare would say. and. The, marauders, and all the rest. And so it was uncovered, and now it's become this place of pilgrimage. And I offer that story as a reminder that these teachings speak to that which is golden in your own heart and your own being, that underneath all the other layers of being, there is an essential beauty and nobility. Oh, nobly born, you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, do not forget who you really are. And so in that spirit, generosity is our true nature. And integrity of words and deeds is our true nature. And vitality, aliveness, energy, effort is our, also our blessing in our true nature. Now, in one of the Buddhist texts, there's a description of how one practices this. Um, where it speaks about right energy or effort. It says there are four forms of wise effort. The effort to avoid, the effort to overcome, the effort to develop, and the effort to sustain. What is the effort to overcome? This is the effort to overcome, excuse me, maybe I, I missed avoiding, The effort to avoid. Yes, here we are. You know how it is. I avoided that one. (laughs) The effort to avoid the arising of unskillful things that have not yet arisen. Okay, I'll go back. And then the effort to overcome, which is the effort to rousing the energy of heart to overcome those unskillful things that have arisen, to release them, to release the energy of greed and anger and hatred and other states, abandon them, dispel them, release them, allow them to disappear. And then the effort to develop, cultivating, nourishing the will, the energy to make that which is beautiful shine from the heart and in the world. The effort to develop and the effort to sustain, once one these beautiful qualities within us have appeared to mature them, to nourish them, to grow them so that the perfection of the heart and the life shines through. So we can, in this really simple way of dividing things, we can look at what is skillful or unskillful. And the definition is really simple. What's unskillful is that which brings suffering to us or someone else. And what's skillful are those things that bring freedom and ease and joy. Love, So the unskillful qualities that the text speaks of, of greed and hate, we could call aggression, possessiveness, exploitation, jealousy, racism, judgment, addiction, fear, hatred of others, those kind of qualities, unconsciousness itself. And then the skillful qualities that are their complement. Compassion, clarity, flexibility, balance, composure, kindness, wisdom. And we can begin to see as we move through life that we can either be caught in the small sense of self, called the body of fear, in which these reactions and addictions and angers and so forth and prejudices are what operate, Or, in a moment, we can drop those, release those, abandon those, and return to that which is beautiful in the heart. It's never more than a moment away. So, again, one of the images from the Buddha. As the turner straightens the arrows, as the farmer channels water to her land, as the fruit picker chooses the fruit that are ripe, each being, each person can develop their own heart into that which is beautiful. No one can harm you as much as your own mind untrained, and no one can bless your life as much as a wise mind, a trained mind and heart, not even the most loving friends and family. So the wise energy or effort, first of all, means tending to our own heart and sensing this inner nobility and beginning to live from that. The goal is to live from that beauty in us. And I remember this story at another men's retreat some years ago when we were talking about and working with conflict and war and all the kind of violence that come in the lives of men and then get perpetrated as we know in the world in all these ways. And one man stood up and he said, "Um, I went to Israel as a young man. I was really drawn to go there and live in one of the communes and one of the kibbutz. Um, I thought it was a kind of inspiring thing to do, he said at that time. But when I got there, they told me that if I wanted to live there as, you know, as a citizen or a place of that person of that country, <coughs> I had to be in the army. There was no way out. Every young man, most young women, had to. So I went in the army, and it's the last thing that I wanted to do. They trained me in shooting and all the things that they train soldiers in, and then I had uh, periods of duty during the year, and one period, I was sent to the northern border, to an outpost with my submachine gun, you know, my automatic weapon, and I was there with some other guys, and we were supposed to be defending Israel against the Palestinians, or whoever it was that was the enemy. He said I was there for a while, and one day I was waiting at my post. It was kind of a quiet part of the country. And all of a sudden I looked out the window at the hill across the way and this young girl, 10 years old, Palestinian goat herd came out with her flock of goats. And so there was, you know, a couple of dozen goats and this 10 year old girl and she didn't know anyone was watching. And so she spread out her arms, and she just did this dance on the hillside in the middle of her, you know, flock of goats, and sang. And he said, I looked at her, and it was so beautiful. And I said, this is the enemy? And I wept, and I put my gun down, and I resigned from the army, and I left Israel. And I just realized after that beauty that I couldn't do it anymore. So perhaps we could say that wise effort of this life force that we're given is the energy or the effort that serves beauty in all its forms. You could call it compassion, Buddha nature. But it serves life itself in us. And in that way, then it's not like we're seeking some goal. The goal is to live with beauty to bring beauty out of our heart. And that kind of goal isn't amenable to ambition. It can't be in the future in some way. It's only where we are. Here it is. Aldous Huxley writes, an idolatrous religion, listen to this, an idolatrous religion, is one in which time is substituted for eternity. Future time in the idea of endless progress is the devil's work, even today demanding human sacrifice on an enormous scale. An idolatrous religion is one in which time is substituted for eternity. And so the work of the heart in this, or the expression of this aspect of Buddha nature is to discover that beauty is to be found where we are. So there was the Buddha wandering along at one point, as he did around India, the way the stories are told, and he came across a man who was a yogi and ascetic, who was standing on one leg. People do, you know, beds of nails and all kinds of wild yogic practices in order to sort of transcend themselves and awaken to the divine. And so this little dialogue was written down. Um, the man said, Oh, I see you are, you are a sage, as the Buddha went by. Um, uh, and I, too, am devoted to the spiritual life. I'm standing here on, on one leg to purify myself and to return to the divine. And, and the Buddha said, And how will you do that? And the man said, Well, as I do this, I am releasing the unwholesome or or bad karma from the past. And that is how I will be free. And the Buddha just looked at him and said, well, how much bad karma have you released? And the man said, well, actually, I don't know. And the Buddha said, well then, how much more do you have to go? (laughs) And the man said, well, actually, I haven't thought about it in that way, I'm not sure. And the Buddha said, well, how will you know when you're in? Man said, Well, I don't know that either exactly. And the Buddha said, You are making a fine effort, my friend, but perhaps it is not the right effort. Let's see, where's the little bear story here? A bear raised in captivity was rescued from the circus and taken sedated to the wilderness to be returned. Waking in the morning, hungry and fearful, it began performing tricks, turning somersaults, (laughs) dancing. Juggling pine cones. A group of bears watched in amazement until one finally asked what was going on. The frightened bear could only answer, If I do this, someone will come and feed and care for me. <laughs> so there was this little dialogue, right? And in that sense, serving beauty is not about some rote blind thing that we do, or an ambition, but it is to be present for the reality of our life as it is, to awaken to that. Most centrally, energy or vitality of Buddha nature is the energy to be mindful, mindful to be where we are. Now it was really interesting being with Irene as she was in her process of getting ready to die over these last couple of months. It's been four years of cancer and treatments and so forth, and she finally realized that she was going to die. And she'd come to a retreat here, well, last month or so, and one of the things that she did was talk to all the teachers there were like five or six teachers and ask each one, "What happens when you die?" Mm-hmm. And then she went and she visited this Tibetan Lama and asked him what happened when you die, and then to this Sufi teacher what happens when you die. The thing is that they had different answers, all right? <laughs> then she came and asked me. I told her the real truth. No.
1: <laughs> I said,
0: well, what do you think, you know? What I did say to her is, and then she said, and how should I die? I said, you know, you will know. It's as natural as giving birth. It is as natural in being born and giving birth as it is to die, and the body knows how to do it. When you have the privilege of sitting with people who are dying consciously, it's remarkable. And she did. I mean, toward the the next couple of weeks, as she got, got weaker and quieter and so forth, I visited her and she said, You know, I do know how to do this. I do know how to let go. So a poem from Susan Griffin, She writes, born into a world knowing this will happen. Oh God, we say, just give me a few more breaths and don't let it be terrible. Let it be soft, perhaps in someone's arms, perhaps tasting chocolate or peaches, (laughs) perhaps laughing or asking, is it over already? Or saying, not yet, not yet. The sky has at this moment turned another shade of blue and see there, a child still plays in the fresh cut grass. To be mindful doesn't mean some great struggle, but rather a willingness to be present for our life, to give our heart and our attention and our care to it. Whether it's your partnership, your lover, your marriage, your kids, your work, the meditation cushion, as you sit. And it means to be available to the tears when they come, because we live in a culture that's forgotten how to grieve. And you could feel it in this retreat in the woods in Mendocino. These were people, people from all over, struggling with one another, and the betrayals between the generations and the betrayals between fathers and sons and the betrayals between black men and brown men and yellow men and white men, all that came in the room and tremendous grief and the importance of allowing that too, where Hafiz says, don't surrender your loneliness so quickly, let it cut more deeply, let it ferment and season you as few human ingredients or divine ones can. Even that you can learn from. To be mindful means a kind of sacred presence, the effort to be where we are and open our mind and heart to this too, this being human. To do this, to make wise effort in spiritual life, which is required, requires as well that you make mistakes. As Zen Master Dogen said, My life has been one continuous mistake, which I love, you know. I think what he's saying is one opportunity to learn after another. Or like Churchill said, I've eaten many of my words and I've found them very nourishing. (laughs) So being mindful means being present for one's breath, one's body as we meditate, for the feelings, for the grief we carry and also for the joy. You know, sometimes we feel so small, and then at other times a wave of dancing and creativity and music and poetry and aliveness will come, and it scares you. What would it mean to let this out, the the gold inside you into the world? Your joys, your tears. Energy, aliveness is a rediscovering, of our capacity to bring a full heart to what we do. And some people, as it said, live on kind of a low flame, right? Well, you don't want to use up all the gas in the propane tank or something like that. Carl Jung, who puts it this way, the attainment of wholeness requires one to stake one's whole being. Nothing less will do. There can be no easier conditions, no substitutes, no compromises. And when we reflect on it, we can sense how much of what we've done at times in our life is half-hearted, kind of meandering through. And then what the times are like when we give our full heart to something, when we're really there, and it almost doesn't matter what it is, whether it's cooking a pot of something on the stove, you know, or meeting a child for a moment or walking into the cafe in the neighborhood and speaking to someone. It almost doesn't matter. It's so satisfying to live with that kind of energy and aliveness. Flannery O'Connor, Irish author, tells in one of his books how as a boy he and his friends would make their way across the countryside and when they came to an orchard wall that seemed too high and too doubtful to try and too difficult to permit their voyage to continue that they would take off their hats and toss them over the wall and then they had no choice but to follow them (laughs) and that's it, that's the spirit of the heart that says yes this too toss your hat over the wall which means to become a channel usually we think of energy as kind of like a battery, right? you know, the amount of love we have, the amount of vitality or whatever And, well, if I love this person or that one, then I'm going to kind of use it up, and I have to save it, you know, or there won't be any left. But it turns out that it's really quite the other way, that the more we open the channel of presence, the more we open the channel of our vitality, the more flows through us. We become a conduit for the life spirit itself. I remember this little story of Zen master Suzuki Roshi, who lived that way. Beginner's mind, he was in many stories and accounts, one of the most present people um, that anyone had met. So this friend of mine said, we'd walked, he said, Suzuki Roshi and some of his disciples, up to, the, to do this ritual, this little ceremony on the top of one of the hills and mountains above Tassahara in the valley there. We got to the top and we were going to get ready to do this ritual and realized that nobody had brought up the shovel. And so we started talking about it. Well, who was supposed to have brought it up, right? (laughs) And who should go down and so forth. And while we were talking about it, about two minutes later we looked and there was Suzuki Roshi halfway down the mountain already on the way to get the shovel. It wasn't talking about it. It was just, shovel, where do I go? So... The quality of this presence of our Buddha nature, of aliveness, energy, vigor, if you will, is a willingness to throw our hat over the wall, is a kind of courage. Only as a warrior can one withstand the path of knowledge, says Don Juan to Carlos Castaneda. A spiritual warrior does not complain or regret anything. To them, everything in life is a challenge. And you know it in meditation. You sit, and all the things that's unfinished in your heart and mind, um, they come to you. Sit and close your eyes, and anything that's not been wept, anything that's longed for, any love that hasn't been expressed, anything in the body that hasn't been tended, it all comes and shows itself. And it asks something of us, our presence, our care, something greater, really. A poem, sort of a story, by Laurie Anderson. In the Tibetan map of the world, the world is a circle, and at the center there's an enormous mountain guarded by four gates. And when they draw a map of the world, they draw the map in sand, and it takes months. And then when the map is finished, they erase it and throw the sand into the nearest river. Last fall, the Dalai Lama came to New York to do a two-week ceremony called the Kala Chakra, which is a prayer to heal the earth. And woven into these prayers were a series of vows that he asked us to take. And before I knew it, I had taken a vow to be kind for the rest of my life. (laughs) And I walked out of there and I thought, for the rest of my life, what have I done? This is a disaster. And I was really worried. Had I promised too much? Not enough. I was really in a panic. They had come from Tibet for the ceremony, and they were walking around Midtown in their new brown shoes. And I went up to one of the monks and said, Can you come with me and have a cappuccino right now and talk? And so we went into this little (laughs) Italian place. He had never had coffee before, so he kept talking faster and faster. (laughs) And I kept saying, Look, I don't know whether I promised too much or too little. Can you help me, please? (laughs) And he was being really practical. He said, look, don't limit yourself, don't be so strict, open it up. He said, the mind is a wild white horse, and when you make a corral for it, make sure it's not too small. And another thing, when your house burns down, just walk away. And another thing, keep your eyes open. And one more thing, keep moving, because it's a long way home. (sighs) Ah. So it's really spiritual life asks us to give ourselves each moment to this moment, to the eternal present and say, yes, I am here in this moment. Yes, I am alive. And that's where the gold is to be found. Sometimes, you know, in the traditional monasteries there's initiations. I know when I first went into uh, the forest monastery with Ajahn Chahot, I got to the gate to come in, and I'd been studying as a layman, but now I was about to enter as a monk. And he looked at me and he said, I hope you're not afraid to suffer. I said, what do you mean I came here to meditate, be peaceful, you know, metta, all that. He just shook his head. He said, there are two kinds of suffering in the world. The suffering that you run away from, that follows you everywhere, and the suffering that you turn and face and transform into freedom. And that's what we do here. If you're interested, please come in
1: like that. I'm not sure. Well, here's
0: James Baldwin who writes, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate and ignorance so stubbornly is because they sense that once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with their own pain. And so a genuine spiritual practice, whatever form in our meditations, in our loving kindness and compassion in the world, in our dedication to the heart of integrity or generosity or patience, like all great things, requires a kind of sacrifice. And it's the sacrifice of our fears, the sacrifice of the small sense of self, the body of fear, the sacrifice that says, not just about being in our habits and our comfort, but we're really here to live something beautiful. What else is there to do in this life? And in the end, spiritual practice then is as much a descent, a a cracking open and entering into what's difficult. If you want to be free, that's part of the journey. Karl Fried von Durkheim, Zen teacher, puts it this way. He says, Where are you? Where are you, Karl Fried? Ah, yes. The person who is really on the way, when they fall upon hard times in the world, will not, as a consequence, turn to the friends who offer refuge and comfort and encourage their old self to survive. Rather, they'll seek out someone who will faithfully and inexorably help them to risk themselves so that they may endure the difficulty and pass courageously through it. Only to the extent that a person exposes themselves over and over again to annihilation can that which is indestructible be found within them. In this daring lies dignity and the spirit of true awakening. So there's presence, the willingness, the energy to be present, and to allow the beauty within us to shine. There is the vitality of feeling and seeing and sensing life as it is, really opening um, and not having the little battery in there, but tossing our hat over the orchard wall and saying, yes, life is taking me this direction, I will go. Another aspect of this heart's perfection, this wisdom of life energy, is a kind of balance or steadiness. It's the balance, the strength of the mother, you know, when the child cries over and over, or the father, and pukes, and has diarrhea, and day and night, you know, and gets sick for a while, and. Mother doesn't really think about it generally. There's this sense of, this is the child I'm nursing, and I hear it out there. Hi. Um, you know, Or you're sitting, I remember sitting with my daughter and sh- as she was learning to use this spoon to eat, you know, and smearing her um, baby food around her face and her little high chair and stuff like that. And about every Fifteen seconds, she'd drop the spoon over the edge on the floor and chortle and laugh about it <laughs> to see if gravity was still working, right? And I'd pick it up, and then she'd smile, and then she'd throw it off again, right? And I'd pick it up again. There's something that you learn in parenting, that love is such a river, and the tending to the dirt and the difficulty and the, the, the long nights and the, you know, dirty diapers and all of the rest of that stuff is just... The practice, it's just the expression of your love. The expression of the energy of the heart. Rumi again. Love is reckless, not reasoned. Reason seeks a profit. Love comes on strong, consuming herself unabashed. Yet in the midst of difficulty, love proceeds like a millstone, hard-surfaced and straightforward. Died to self-interest, she risks everything and asks nothing but love itself. (coughs) There's a kind of steadiness, and yet to do it, to sustain it, requires also a wisdom or a balance. You know, the image of the Buddhas of the lute string that's not too tight, you don't get the right sound from it, and not too loose. in our crazy society where everything is so speedy and the news comes in and the politics are all crazy and insane and everybody's blaming everybody else, sometimes you just need to turn it off and walk in the redwoods and go to the ocean and find a place to sit in meditation and read a poem and sense that which allows your life energy to blossom and to be full, not in the reaction to the world around, but from this inner vitality itself. I like to, uh, on my day longs that I've been teaching for years and years, I use this image that was um, a poster in a health food store that I saw in Santa Cruz back in the 1970s of Swami Satchitananda the Hindu guru, wonderful man with a long flowing beard and you know, um, very wise teacher who died just this last year. Anyway, this was a poster and it had Swami Satchitananda there in a little orange loincloth standing in the tree pose like this more or less, more elegantly, with his little loincloth on, except he was balanced on a surfboard on a really big wave. It was very impressive. <laughs> And it said underneath, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. Meditate with Swami Satchitananda or something. It was like a little advertisement. (laughs) So yes, we throw our hat over the wall. Yes, we give our heart. But also, the energies, the waves will come. And in that, what's also asked is the attention to balance. We know balance. We know how to ride a bicycle. We know the balance when we listen to our heart. And then the deepest expression of this perfection of our nobility, Buddha nature, vitality, is its inherent present. It's presence. Really we can trust and it was so interesting being going from this, you know kind of initiation quality of the men's retreat and drumming and, and tremendous conflict between men and the betrayals and the struggles and, and uh, songs and uh, poetry and this great kind of um, uh, at the end, a big banquet that we had to celebrate that we'd made it through without hurting one another. Um, and that we'd found some healing in this group. And then to go to that, go from that to this house where where Irene had died, and it was so silent and still. Um, and in both, there was a kind of trust underneath. Trust that when weeping and song needed to be present, that we could be there for that. And also trust that when the season called for stillness and letting go. We could also be there for that. Trust that what moves the stars moves through us. So many ways we've cut off and shut down from the energy of life, shame and survival and fear and, you know, maybe all those years of taking multiple choice tests, you know, (laughs) did something to you. Remember the story of the little girl who spoke to her mother when her mom was going off to work um, and uh, she said, "Mommy, um, I know you teach I know you teach at the university. She, her mother was a professor in the art department. What do you do when they you're there?" And her mother said, "Well, I teach people how to paint and draw." And the little girl looked at her and said, "You mean they forget?" So we do get cut off from something, don't we? I mean, all you have to do is see a four- or five-year-old with crayons and paints, and there's nothing that stops that energy. It's so innate. And that which moves through the stars and moves through that child, which is us, is still here in us. Maybe the betrayal really of all betrayals is the betrayal of ourself. And so we want to somehow dare to trust this energy to be alive, to be ourselves. Pablo Casals, the wonderful cellist, writes, the answer to helplessness is not so very complicated. A human can do something for peace without having to jump into politics Each one of us has inside us a basic decency and goodness. If we listen to it and act on it, we're giving a great deal of what the world needs most. It's not complicated, but it takes courage, courage and trust. The courage for a person to listen to their own goodness and trust it and act upon it. Do we dare be ourselves? This is the question that counts. Do you dare follow your heart? It gets very quiet in here between the words. Very sweet. And that too is part of the rhythm. The action and then this huge, vast stillness that surrounds us always, silence that's great. To return to the silence and then let the vitality of life, the aliveness move through us to discover a fearless love of life. And then we begin to realize the more we do it, and you all know this, you've all had your moments and more than your moments. There comes a growing ease. In the Tao Te Ching, it's called Free and Easy Wandering, to dance on the graves and on the mountaintops with a natural connectedness and joy and presence. And then exertion and ease, they become one. The image from the Buddha of those who have awakened this inner nobility is like an elephant moving through the rushes the side of the river. Dignified, beautiful, gracious, unstoppable. (laughs) A friend of mine when I became a monk in this Burmese monastery uh, was a Hungarian refugee who'd been in prison for 10 years in Hungary. He'd studied Chinese medicine before that and when he got out of prison Um, He escaped from Hungary at that time. It was still part of the Soviet Union Empire. Um, And the thing that he most wanted to do was to see the Dalai Lama. So he made his way to Dharamsala and became ordained as a Tibetan monk. And because he'd spent uh, 10 years in prison, he was really interested in the yogis in the caves. What were they doing for all those years? Because he'd been thinking about them, imagining, you know, his own practice and what they were doing. So the Dalai Lama, after hearing his story, gave him special permission to go up in the mountains and visit a few of the yogis who would only see people once every several months dropping off food or something like that. He said, so I went to this one cave, this cave way up in the mountains, and there was this long-haired, you know, Tibetan yogi with his beads and chanting, you know, as we came in. And paid our respects, beautiful eyes," he said. And I sat with him for a time and we had a translator and then I wondered, now what practice does he do in this cave? I looked at him and I said, what practice do you do, you know? When I, when I wonder, I, you know, do you work with the breath? And he said, this huge smile came across the yogi's face and he looked at me and he said, it breathes itself. It breathes itself. And I asked him about other practices, and he would just smile and say, ah, It breathes itself. That was his answer. There is a way, and we know it, when there's this balance of stillness in our life and then a willingness to throw our hat over the wall, there is a way that we start to live in rhythm in harmony with life itself, with this energy of life. And the true men and women of the Tao, it said, have no mind to fight the Tao. They did not try through their own contriving to help the Tao along, but rather we find our own way. We begin to trust. And I think it's one of the most beautiful qualities that I look at in someone like my teacher Ajahn Shah or the stories of Suzuki Roshi. It's a little bit like maybe jazz or some art form of calligraphy where you have this rice paper and a brush full of ink and you can't go back. You just mm-hmm. give yourself to it. It's said that Lord Byron, the poet, when he went to uh, the university, I guess it was Oxford that he attended, at the end of one of the required classes, which was on the study of the New Testament and the Bible, they were given examinations, blue books or whatever they gave in those days, and expected to sit and write a two-hour essay, and culmination of their class. And so the assignment that was written on the board for this particular class, was to write an essay on Christ's miracle of turning water into wine. And all the other students sat in there assiduously writing their good Oxford University essays about biblical interpretation and the story and mythology and so forth. And Byron just sat there listening, didn't write a thing, hour passed, hour and a half. It was time to collect the exam papers and he'd written nothing yet. And the examiner who was there watching came by, started to collect the papers and walked up to young Byron and said, "Uh, have you nothing to say? And Byron picked up his pen and wrote one line, the water met its master and blushed. (laughs) He got an A. You know, in this world of unbearable beauty and unspeakable suffering, homelessness and violence, and the US, uh, the United States of America, the wealthiest country on earth is, I don't know, 30th in the world or 40th in the world for infant mortality. We don't take care of our children you know, in our vast prison population and all the other things, there's that. Um, and yet there's also so much beauty. Tend your garden, feed the homeless, walk for peace, make your work a labor of love. Sit in meditation, take time to listen to your heart and the four efforts, those things which are unskillful, unbeautiful, release them and listen to that golden being that is your true nature and bring it to life in the world. Stop thinking our global crisis is all there is. Realize that for every ongoing war and religious outrage and environmental devastation and bogus attack plan, There are a thousand counterbalancing acts of staggering generosity and humanity and art and beauty happening all over the world right now on a breathtaking scale from flower box to cathedral. Resist the temptation to drown in fatalism, to shake your head and sigh and just throw in the karmic towel, and realize this is the perfect moment to envision the re-enchantment of the world to change the energy, to step right up, crank your personal volume right when it seems dark and bitter and offensive and acrimonious and conflicted and bilious. Here's your opening. Remember mystery. And finally, believe in the seeds you plant. Believe you are part of a groundswell, a resistance, a seemingly small but actually huge impending karmic transformation, the energy of life, the great shift, the beginning of something important and potent and beautiful and unstoppable. So let's sit for a moment.